The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox podcast. This week, we explore Hannah Arendt's The Origins of Totalitarianism. This is my first episode. I review political science books on my website, www.democracyparadox.com. I began an intense reading program um, about a few years ago. Uh, Throughout most of my life, I had taken democracy for granted. Uh, Elections were, you know, really just about policy preferences. Uh, Democracy itself never really seemed in danger. Uh, The United States was different than the rest of the world. But I was wrong. Around the world, democracy has slowly slipped away. And people just didn't really seem to care. Uh, they just wanted their party to win. I began to, to see democracy differently. I, I saw it as a paradox. Uh, the simplest view of democracy for me has always been as a government of the people. But, uh, but what happens when the people choose to give up? Uh, What happens when they choose to abandon democracy? Is this choice really democratic? Uh, Can the will of the people be undemocratic? My blog explores these ideas through some of my readings. Uh, This podcast will also take some of those readings and break down some of the key concepts for those who want to understand democracy in greater depth, like me. Um, The aim is not to summarize anybody else's works. Uh, I also encourage you to read the books that I review. Uh, But I want to spark your interest because democracy depends on you. Uh, You must remain committed to democracy for it to ultimately succeed. Now, this week I discuss Hannah Arendt's The Origins of Totalitarianism. This masterpiece was published back in 1951. That's when the first edition came out. Uh, It was just a couple years after World War II. Most of us are going to read a revised edition um, that, from what I can tell, is, is essentially from 1958. Uh, She has a very narrow definition of totalitarianism. Uh, She only discusses uh, the Nazi Germany regime uh, led by Adolf Hitler and the Soviet regime led by Joseph Stalin. Um, I would also include the Chinese regime of Mao Zedong, but really Mao did—the Chinese revolution didn't really take place until— just a few years before she actually wrote uh, wrote her first edition, so it makes sense why it's not there. It's important to recognize that Arendt 
recognized uh, a critical difference between authoritarianism and totalitarianism. The term totalitarianism is thrown around way too easily. Uh, Madeleine Albright recently wrote a book called Fascism, A Warning, where she lumps Turkey's Erdogan, Russia's Putin, Hungary's Orban, and Trump together with Mussolini and Hitler. Her approach um, is a bit too cavalier for me, but it, it reflects the way many of us use, uh, use the political terminology. The origins of totalitarianism sometimes will, um, like the actual book, will actually read kind of as a history of political ideas. She traces the origins of anti-Semitic thought and even devotes an entire chapter to the Dreyfus Affair. But those who look for an historical account, something that's, that's more history, are going to leave disappointed while reading her book. Uh, she jumps around a lot. In terms of uh, in terms of time, it's it's not a linear uh, history that she's providing, um, nor is it her intention to establish a chronological account. It's more of a history of ideas. Uh, she explores how people came to accept totalitarianism. Uh, this allows her to explain uh, the philosophical state of mind of the totalitarian state. It it ends up becoming just an absolute remarkable. Uh, work of political philosophy. And so there's going to be a lot to unpack here, and, and we're not going to get to everything. Um, the key concept that I want to explore is going to be the distinction between the state and the law. Uh, this is a, a very overlooked concept in political thought. Many intellectuals just really can't comprehend this distinction between the state and the law. Um, Look at John Rawls in his classic, A Theory of Justice. Uh, his concept of justice involves, involves essentially the, the, an origin for the state or a justification of the state. Um, he offers no distinction between law and the state. Uh, they're, they're just synonymous for him. Uh, this is an absolute common mistake among political philosophers and political scientists. Uh, consequently, A Theory of Justice becomes a lot about um, the, the justifications for redistribution. Um, it's not some, it's something I've written about. It's not something I want to talk about right now. But at the end, it's, it's, it's really focused on a philosophy, um, on an origin of the state. But he, he doesn't discuss um, or distinguish between an origin for the law as a result. Now, Hannah Arendt defines totalitarianism um, a little bit different. She defines it loosely as the presence of the state without the law. This is an absolutely remarkable insight. Uh, in a moment, we're going to explore the ways uh, the law was established without a state. But I want to first kind of emphasize that nobody had really imagined the possibility of the state without the law. Hobbes, for example, saw the entire purpose of the state as the creation and enforcement of the law. The survival of the state without law would have been an impossibility for him. But Hannah Arendt, she saw this as the absolute essence of what it meant to be totalitarian. Let me explain. 
Uh, Hitler came to power through the constitution of the Weimar Republic. A lot of us know this. Uh, it's commonly understood that he brought this regime effectively to an end. But he never actually went through the effort to change the German constitution. He, he just simply ignored it. Uh, Arendt makes a similar claim for Stalin, although it might be a little less strong. Um, obviously, Soviet Russia was never a democracy to begin with, but there were some limitations on Stalin's rule, the rule of the leader. Um, he didn't reform or change Soviet law, per se. Um, he just disregarded anything that would have been an imposition on him. Um, the foundation of, of both regimes was never grounded in the law. It was established through the power of the state. So to understand the implications of this insight, it helps to walk through social contract theory. It's something that uh, most of us uh, should be familiar with if we've studied political theory at all. Uh, the social contract, though, is, is often overgeneralized in the classroom. It's, uh, it's focused on as, as the formation of the state, uh, especially, like I said before, uh, in hindsight of the of the developments that, that John Rawls and Robert Nozick have done in the past. But, but this is really a, a complete misconception on what the early social contract theorists, uh, Hobbes, Locke, and Rousseau, were really writing about. Um, the social contract theory is about the formation of the law. Uh, few theorists will recognize this distinction, but, but few really discuss it in depth. So uh, let's begin with Hobbes. He is considered a liberal. But he doesn't talk about any rights except for a little bit about the right to life. Uh, and he gives very few limitations to state power. It is easy to imagine his philosophy as a justification for totalitarian government itself. But despite all of this, he, he is still regarded as a liberal. Why? Hobbes famously described the state of nature as nasty British and short. His social contract is about the formation of the state, but the formation of the state is really just designed um, to establish law. Hobbes writes, The desires and other passions of men aren't sinful in themselves, nor are actions that come from those passions until those who act know a law that forbids them. They can't know this law until laws are made. And they can't be made until men agree on the person who is to make them. The law, for Hobbes, establishes a sense of order. It establishes norms to govern behavior between different people. Life outside the law becomes violent. Life under the law is peaceful. Those who break the law become outlaws. They rely on violence to defend their life. Violence becomes an act beyond the law. Authority for Hobbes gives people the law, but is not bound by it. Uh, he says specifically that um, the law can't be made until men agree on the person who is to make them. This becomes the important part of the state, and he sees the state oftentimes as embodied in a person, a human being. Um, but it, it's beyond that. He, he says in other parts where, where the king is effectively, he stays in a state of nature. He's not bound by the law. He's not under the law. And there's, there's a reason for this. 
the fact that he's outside the law makes whoever is is acts as the state makes that person an outlaw. It gives this person the right to use violence against those who break the law. It, that person is not limited by it so that they're able to create new laws, but they're also able to enforce those laws. Um, the power to create and enforce those laws is so immense for Hobbes. Um, he has an inability to just imagine how you would even start to limit this power. Um, this is why Hobbes advocates for absolutism. It's, it's just a natural consequence of the social contract for Hobbes. Um, but it reflects a problem for him. He's really unable to resolve the conflict between the law and the state, so the state ends up becoming all-powerful. Um, it's, it's so immense that, that you end up having to just create the law. You end up having to have the state as a consequence. Now, John Locke offers a resolution. I, I want to clarify that I don't want to give the impression that, that the Lockean social contract is somehow a response to Hobbes. Uh, it is not. He references Hobbes just twice in a second treatise, and, and even one of the times it, it barely comes across in passing. But Locke was unable to imagine how the state was exempt from the law. He writes, uh, wherever law ends, tyranny begins. By definition, then, Locke saw Hobbes's Leviathan as a justification for tyranny. Locke did not believe the state was necessary for the law. He imagined the presence of a natural law for the state of nature. The social contract, then, was a substitution of a new form of law made by men for that natural law was not difficult for Locke to imagine the presence of law in the absence of the state. History had, it has many examples. Uh, the Israelites, for example, um, he's very familiar with the Bible. Uh, they were given the law of Moses, but there was no state. They had judges to decide the law, but no government. In the book of Samuel, the Israelites eventually ask for a king. Uh, when Samuel becomes an old man. Uh, Samuel is disheartened and views it as a rejection of his leadership, but God tells him it's, it's really just a rejection of him. Now, my point in introducing um, this story is that uh, the monarchy for the Israelites was a significant change in, in their political structure. It introduced the presence of the state the law had already existed. It, it had long existed. Athens was also said to have been given was said to have been given its laws by a lawgiver. Uh, his name was Salon. Now, after he established the laws, he left for ten years because the people had agreed not to make any changes until he returned. Um, he made his absence so long because it gave them time to adapt, get used to them, and understand how they were supposed to work. He forced them to live with them. Because um, if he would have stayed, he felt that he would have been, uh, there would have been demands for new reforms to occur. He wanted them to experience them beforehand. Um, my point in giving this story as well is, is that history and myth, uh, they give a lot of examples where the lawmaker is distinct and separate 
from those who actually govern. Um, and this is, this is really key. And, and there are even examples from modern history as well. Uh, the American Constitution emerged out of a convention where the basic law was established before the state was, was established. The state, the state had the pow- has the power to make laws, but it's bound under a framework of pre-existing law, a, a constitution that limits its authority and power. Locke saw all people as, as equal under the law. Uh, this insight becomes the basis of what is eventually called the rule of law. Now, a lot of theorists and commentators write about the rule of law. Uh, but not everybody has taken the time to think through its meaning. Uh, they haven't taken t- the time to think through its implications. The rule of law has often been treated as is simply synonymous with an independent judicial system um, and, and a few other buzzwords. But it's a lot more than that. Uh, Francis Fukuyama does go through the effort to distinguish between what he calls the rule of law and a rule by law. Uh, but there's no clear distinction to differentiate the two that I've found um, in his work, uh, particularly in uh, The Origins of Political Order um, or Political Order and Political Decay. Um, the, for him, the rule of law, the difference between the rule of law and the rule by law, it falls into this nebulous category where you kind of know it when you see it. Um, so let's, let's dive in deep into, into, what I call the, into what is known as the rule of law. Uh, let's let's work this out together. Um, it helps to recognize the law uh, not simply as a concept, but as an actual institution. An institution does not need to be a formal organization, though, to bring it to life. Uh, for example, marriage and family. These are two very important institutions, but there's no formal organization. Somebody doesn't have formal position it's, it's just something that we recognize, something that just exists. And, and we understand what it is when, when we see it. If somebody says that they, that they have a family, um, there's a sense of what that means. Uh, institutions establish a framework where we understand relationships between people. Uh, the law is a peculiar institution because it imposes an equal opportunity obligation on everybody to follow it. The rule of law establishes an institutional supremacy, meaning the law becomes an institution that we follow um, when others conflict. So other institutions can exist and even thrive, but they're all bound by the law. If, if you commit a crime, you can't, you can't use the excuse that, well, I'm a father, so I, I have the right to do whatever I want to to my children. Um, you don't have the ability to say, hey, I'm a teacher and I work in a school so I can do whatever I want to these children. Um, we're all bound by the law. And under the law, there is a natural sense of equality that eventually leads to what is referred to as rights. So let, let's take a step back now. We've, we've talked a little bit about what rule of law is and how that becomes an institution that, that is kind of supersedes all others um, and allows them to coexist. So let's, let's come back now to what is called totalitarianism. 
I said before that Arendt defined it as the presence of state without the law. But what does that mean? It helps to understand the state as an institution that is independent of the law. Uh, The law establishes, like I said before, uh, a sense of natural equality where everybody lives under a common set of rules. Um, That's the idealism of the law. But the state establishes a relationship between those who govern and those who are governed. Um, The law establishes a horizontal relationship between people. It, It establishes a relationship for how we behave with each other. But the state establishes a vertical relationship between the government and the governed. It allows for the centralization of social resources. So the state has the power to tax, but it also has the power to confer benefits like old age pensions or health care. It has the power to impose force through a military or through the police, but it also has the power to protect. Totalitarianism brings about the institutional supremacy of the state. But there's a problem in, in, this, in this framework, um, in this political system. It, it, there's a kind of paradox in centralization. Um, the centralization of resources, it often um, brings about an inevitable decentralization, especially when, when we look at things over time. Um, or the larger things get, the more likely they are to break down. It's kind of like the law of entropy, where everything will eventually find a way um, to to result in disorder. Um, the expansion of the state brings about the creation of new institutions, like the military, the police, the civil service, even things like representative assemblies. Um, these institutions are a part of the state, but they can also behave independent of the state. Uh, just imagine a military coup, what, what, that, what that means in this, in this context. Uh, the military is a part of the state. Um, it's, it, it operates, you know, it's, it functions from the state. It draws, it, its meaning comes from the state. It, its origin is part of the state. But in a military coup, it can seize the power of the state. Uh, it acts independently and can even take over the whole system. Uh, In totalitarianism, the state has to exercise its control, not just over society, but also its constituent parts, each one of these institutions that are created um, because the state continues to grow. The parts of the state have to act in concert with the aims of the state as a whole in totalitarianism. In a democracy, the law keeps these different institutions Balanced, it 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 allows there to be decentralization, but at the same time um, offers an overarching framework. But in a totalitarian state, the law is the servant of the state. Uh, it becomes the law becomes irrelevant in the presence of state power. This is where things get really weird. Totalitarianism will then use purges of officials to weaken state capacity. It, it weakens state effectiveness through these purges. Uh, the totalitarian state is not necessarily well run. 
the most competent bureaucrats and leaders can't remain because their competence gives them a sense of independence, especially as they gain experience. A totalitarian state actually relies on incompetent loyalty. Experience becomes a challenge to the consistent aims of the state. Uh, Purges even become a means to strengthen their support. Um, Younger generations find opportunities for advancement as older generations are set aside. But it becomes a devil's bargain. Arendt describes it as the, the fulfillment of every career ambition, but with, with the recognition that the system inevitably turns against you. Power in totalitarianism is naturally centralized within uh, a single leader, um, oftentimes described as a charismatic leader, like Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Um, I also throw in Mao Zedong. It is through a supreme leader where the state finds um, a consistency in its purpose, a single vision, a single message. It's easy then to mistake any form of dictatorship as as totalitarianism, but the presence of, of a personal dictatorship is not quite the same as totalitarianism. Uh, It's a challenge to eliminate every source of independent authority and dissent. It's even counterproductive. The totalitarian state institutionalizes the use of its arbitrary power over the universality of law. Society becomes unified through its its relationship to the state, but there is a loneliness in the absence of law. Uh, It establishes an absolute pure atomization of the individual in relationship to each other. People turn on each other to demonstrate loyalty to the state uh, because there's really no horizontal relationship between the people. There's no, no sense of solidarity to to reference Durkheim and his, his concept of, of, of society being mechanical or organic solidarity. There's no sense of solidarity between the people. Your connection to other people uh, is facilitated through your connection back through the state. As a result, the rejection of the state, defiance of the state, then leaves a person in complete isolation and loneliness. Democracy, in, in my view, is, is really a political process of inclusion. Um, you get into Robert Dahl, he's going to talk about you know, inclusive participation, and that's, that's a significant part of it, but there's also um, inclusive governance that, that involves democracy. But totalitarianism um, can also feel democratic to the extent where people are incorporated into the state. They feel included. But the inclusion of some always depends, uh, in totalitarianism, it it ends up depending on the exclusion of others. Concentration camps, gulags, they they end up not being, uh, they're not a consequence of totalitarianism. They become a necessary component of it. 
the sense of inclusion in the totalitarian state, it depends on the exclusion and the oppression of somebody else. I find that this book speaks to our times because uh, populism has many parallels to totalitarianism. Uh, populism has a democratic element. It, it offers a sense of inclusion for many who are alienated by uh, liberal democracy or, or by the current state of, uh, of society. Um, but this inclusion is, is based on the condition that they are going to exclude others once they take power. Uh, populists are sometimes confused as radical majoritarians um, through, you know, discussion or by their demands for uh, plebiscites or, or expressions of direct democracy. But the populist, they, they don't have like a firm commitment to the principle of majority rule. Um, they, they like, they like direct democracy. They like referendums and plebiscites because when they win, there's, there's no room for compromise. Um, and, and so they, they don't need there to be a major, a majority behind any opinion for them to, to support it. Um, look at Trump's election. Uh, very few populists really care that Trump lost the popular vote. Uh, they simply wanted to win. And they want a total victory without any sense of compromise with their opponents. It's a common mistake, then, of libertarians and conservatives um, when, they, when they think about totalitarianism to believe that the expansion of state power uh, reflects a drift towards totalitarianism. Um, but the state capacity, state performance, the, the ability to have a well-run, well-managed government, um, it's, not, it's not reflective of totalitarian temptations. Uh, Francis Fukuyama, for example, has written about the importance of state performance. Um, he's written a recent piece in Foreign Affairs talking about how the performance of the state um, is relevant to what we've experienced with the recent pandemic from uh, COVID-19. Um, he's written quite a bit about it over the past 15 years. Uh, libertarians, though, they oftentimes imagine that a well-run bureaucracy risks a descent into totalitarianism. But the constant purges of state bureaucrats, they actually weakens the totalitarian state. Totalitarianism is, isn't at all about, about having well-run order, well-run government. Uh, conservatives seem to believe that they're impervious to totalitarianism, that they're not susceptible because they look to reduce regulations and they campaign to reduce federal programs. But um, the size of government actually doesn't have anything to do with totalitarianism. Um, it's actually the efforts to weaken the rule of law that, that's the greatest risk. Uh, this weekend, um, there's, there's reports, well, it's, it's well known, um, that the uh, Trump administration has asked um, the attorney, um, the district attorney, uh, over in New York, um, uh, to, uh, they, f they fired him because he was investigating, uh, members of the Trump administration. This is, this is what we're talking about when we're talking about, uh, weakening the rule of law, the sense that the law doesn't apply to everyone equally.
Now, the Polish philosopher, Rizard Lugutko, he, he has written about what he describes as the totalitarian temptations in free societies. Um, he describes this, this expansive sense of law as, as the demon in democracy. But this really reflects a fundamental misunderstanding of totalitarianism from the far right. Legutko believes it is the expanded role of law which brings about the totalitarian state. But he just does not get it. It is the absence of law that brought about totalitarianism. It is the far-right law and justice party, which Legutko belongs to, that has sought to undermine the rule of law in Poland, for example. Now, over recent weeks, the United States has become consumed by the protests over the death of George Floyd. There are parallels to the protests and riots in 1968 that were also about racial discrimination, largely. Like Richard Nixon, Donald Trump has described himself as the president of law and order. It is interesting how the presidents who treated the law with the greatest ambivalence, believe they can become the very embodiment of the law. There is a fundamental misconception in how we allow ourselves to talk about the law. The police are a reflection of state power. This is an just amazingly important distinction The great debate today is not between human rights and the law. Uh, The problem we face is a common one. It comes up every generation. We must resolve the conflict between the law and state power. The solutions, though, are never obvious. Now, I I have... Recommendations for those who want to learn more about the concepts I've discussed, who want to dive deeper into uh, Hannah Arendt and the origins of totalitarianism um, with completely different authors and, and stuff that's, that's related, especially new works. Now, first, I, I want to recommend an article by Carl Frederick um, that's a classic article from 1961 in the Journal of Politics. It is called Political Leadership and the Problem of Charismatic Power. Charismatic leadership is really a key concept for those who study totalitarianism. Um, it's also been applied to the study of populism. So this article is, is possibly more relevant today than it was back in, the ni- in 1961 when it was written. Secondly, uh, I want to recommend Kevin DeWong. Uh, has a fascinating work called The Virtues of Violence, Democracy Against Disintegration in Modern France. I find this relevant because totalitarianism institutionalizes violence as a component of state power, uh, but the fight for freedom has also descended into violence oftentimes. Uh, Duong's work is entertaining and informative, but it's, um, at the end of the day, it's just absolutely brilliant. Um, finally, uh, Larry Allen Busk's recent work, uh, Democracy in Spite of the Demos, for, from Arendt to uh, the Frankfurt School places Arendt 
as a key influence of current philosophical schools culminating in the philosophy of radical democracy. It's dense. It's, uh, but it can really help students relate the philosophy of Arendt to more recent scholarship. Um, you know, especially, uh, especially radical democracy, the, the work of Chantal Mouffe and, um, uh, and Leclau. You can read my review of the origins of totalitarianism on my website at www.democracyparadox.com. I have written over 60 reviews um, on books related to political science, and I post a new review every Saturday. Uh, please join me as I explore the meaning of democracy in all of its death, depth and its beauty. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.